With all the negativity going on in the bass fishing world right now, you may want us to talk about that, but we are not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the angler behind the shield, and you're going to hear from Trent Palmer on this episode. That's a good one. That's a good one. Oh, God, it's a toad, It's a toad, dude. Let's go. I wake up to a little bit of drool on my pillow, feel like it's going to be a bad day. What's going on, everyone? Fans of the OneCast, what's going on, Ben? What's going on? If you guys are, well, for the YouTube watchers here, you can see it's just Trey and I sitting in the room here because uh, our buddy Pete, he's having a little family vacation. He's soaking up the sun, getting some suntan, catching some flounder. He actually just popped on here, so let's bring him on. Yeah, Pete's uh, selfishly with his family down uh, uh, at the beach enjoying some good time. So, hey, Pete, how you doing, brother? I'm good, boys. What's going on? Man, you know what? We're just sweating it out here in the uh, in the studio, but it's about nine thousand degrees, so this uh, air conditioning is working overtime. But hey, check it out, guys! Uh, head on over to uh, onecastfishing.com. Use the code the onecast, save ten percent at your checkout on all the new soft plastics that just came out. The snagless jigs, the weedless net heads, the long neck hooks. We couldn't do without our sponsors and, and all the support that we get and uh, all the fans as well. Uh, ben, is there anything that you wanted to plug at the beginning first? I mean, you, you hit the one. I mean, you hit one cast fishing, stainless jigs, plastics, and all. I think that's about it. I mean, yeah. we don't. You know, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna bring Trent um, on here in a second. I think uh, we we've hit agnosium the last couple of weeks about some of the the news in the industry, and right now it's kind of a lull. There's not a lot going on. I mean, uh, the Bassmaster Elite Series at St. Clair started today. But uh, this is as filming, so we'll talk about that next week and, and the results there. But uh, it's a looks like to be a slugfest, bunch of cookie cutter smallmouth. But it should be a good event. But that that is not why we're uh, we're on the day. Yeah. Today we're going to bring on. So I just lost my train of thought. <laughs> it's all good. Today we're going <laughs> to bring on uh, Trent Palmer, who is the uh, the champion up at Saginaw Bay, Michigan, for the National Professional Fishing League. Uh, but before we bring him on real quick, Pete, is there anything you want to give a shout-out about from your side of the house? No, nothing this week. We've been talking about a bunch of great sponsors. Uh, I know Trent's a busy guy. There's a lot going on, so I'm not going to go through all that. Uh, appreciate everybody's support. And uh, we might have some uh, some new sponsor opportunities and things coming for you all, so keep your eyes peeled for that. But uh, not a whole lot going on. Just enjoying, uh, enjoying time with family right now. All right. Well, speaking of family, let's uh, let's bring Trent on because we want to make sure that he has time with his family. I know he's been busy. So uh, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Trent Palmer, welcome cool. to the one cast, my man. What's going on, guys? How you doing? Oh, another day in paradise. We've been hard at it this week. Yeah. How's it feel to be a hundred thousand dollars richer after uh, the last event? Um, it really didn't hit me until about tuesday just because um being a business owner i was gone for a week so mondays coming back are not a whole lot of fun um and i think it was tuesday afternoon i got home and i was just a uh, girlfriend had just made dinner for us and i look over at the trophy still kind of i had it sitting on the kitchen counter I actually haven't really found a spot for it yet and uh, i was like yeah this is pretty cool i won that tournament and it just kind of <laughs> all hit me at one time so so you're saying even with that giant shield and, and that, that money that's probably going to disappear, you still have a case of the Mondays? Yeah, um, it, uh, it's, it feels like every day this week's been a Monday. We, uh, we've got a lot of boats that just when I was out of town, we had little, little parts issues come up, so they got delayed. So we got 
a little bit more more boats here at the shop than I normally like to have. So we got a little bit of a backlog situation. So it's uh, it's been some long long nights the past couple nights. Yeah. So you know you're, you're talking about boats right now. If you wouldn't mind breaking it down, uh, we said it in the beginning, but who, who's the angler behind the shield, man? Like break it down for the fans. Yeah. So um, I guess you know if it was. Uh, if I didn't say it earlier, name's Trent Palmer. I'm from Cumming, Georgia, um, which is just north of Atlanta on Lake Lanier. Um, I own a business called Sonar Pros. We specialize in electronics install sales, and we make our man, uh, make and manufacture our own uh, specific wiring harness for those electronics. Um, I've been tournament fishing. I, I would say, to give a little background on tournament fishing, I've been tournament fishing pretty seriously since 2010, 2011, when I got into college fishing. Uh, when I was in high school, there was not high school fishing, but I did fish um, some smaller club tournaments with a buddy. Um, and really, I guess you could say the bug for tournament fishing really didn't hit till I got into college fishing. Um, I fished for a school in South Georgia called Georgia Southern. Um, was pretty competitive in college, um, did well in a couple of national championships. And then post-college is when I kind of started getting into BFLs and Toyota series. Um, had some success there. I won a BFL in Hartwell. Um, I think I had four, three or four top tens in Toyotas, had a top 10 in the Toyota series championship, qualified for the All-American All -American by finishing third in a regional on Lanier. Um, so had some pretty good success through those ranks, I guess you could say. And locally, I've won a decent amount of tournaments on Lanier as well um, over the years. So um, which ultimately led me into fishing last year was my first year with the NPFL, um, had, um, pretty good year overall. I, I think I finished, uh, if I remember correctly, 14th in AOI, I could be wrong on that. Um, uh, but overall had a pretty good year. And then obviously this year we kicked off or we're in our, into our fourth tournament with a win. So, um, I guess that's, that's a real quick rundown of who Trent Palmer is. That's good, man. Uh, you know, a lot of guys follow a lot of the stats and, and of course, like I, I know stats of like some anglers, but to be honest with you, I don't really dig into all the stats. Yeah. I think, you know, sometimes like we get so wrapped up with like, you know, tournament wins and how many top tens and all this stuff, but everything is subject to change. So I think it's more important to, uh, to kind of get to know the person. Right. And, and yeah. that kind of speaks to, uh, to the story. Um, go ahead, Ben. I know you're going to ask something. Well, well, there's a couple of things on my mind here. First, let's talk about, so you get back and you have the Mondays and you you, you talk about owning and running um, Sonar Pro. So yep. break it down. Like, how, how did you start that business and, and how that come about? Because that is, uh, we ha we've had a lot of folks on the podcast and we like talking about how you can get into the industry without necessarily tournament fishing. Because we all know it's, it's so hard, right, to actually make a living tournament fishing. But there's ample opportunities out there um, to be in the industry um, and you found a solution before that, before you went off and, and you know, it became a professional angler with the NPFL. Yeah. So uh, Sonar Pros kind of started um, a little bit by accident, I guess you could say. So when I fished in college, um, I am my, my strong suit even to this day is fishing offshore. Hence why I have a company that specializes in electronics. Um, back in college, I had a O2 Triton that I slapped two Gen 2 10s on the boat and uh had a pretty quick issue where when I would crank the engine, the graphs would dim out. Well, prior to getting into um, wiring that bass boat, my previous um, passions involved, I'm, I'm a pretty big car nut still to this day. My other hobbies are pretty heavily revolved around vehicles. Um, but when I was in my high school days, like anyone else, 
um, put a, you know, a sound system in my, in my vehicle that actually ended up turning into a business where I did, uh, high-end car audio installs and competitions, um, and really got to understand and know DC voltage through there. So in college, fast forward to when I had those two gen two tens that would dim out, actually, they might've been gen one tens from Lawrence. I don't remember, but I knew immediately, all right, I've got a good battery. So it's just a wiring issue. So the first sonar pros wiring harness was me cutting the ends off an orange extension cord, running it through the boat, and we fixed my problem. Now, <laughs> looking back on it, that's not the right way to do it because that's just straight copper wire and it's you know subject to corrosion over a period of time. But you know when you're in college fishing, you, you do what you can as far as from a cost perspective. So um, over the years, that kind of developed into, you know as I changed boats and um, worked on other buddies' boats, just kind of refined the rigging process for electronics. And then um, it was about... I just kind of always rig buddies boats. And then it was about 2018. I was like, man, I could definitely make some, you know, I had a corporate sales job, but I was like, I can make some side money working on boats and just kind of word of mouth started taking boats in, in my personal garage. And then, um, 2019, it was like the year all my buddies made the elite series. So I rigged Drew Cook's boat, Jake Whitaker's boat, Patrick Walter's boat, um, a couple other guys' boats, and then just kind of word of mouth spread with them that I was good at rigging boats and getting things done right. And then the, the evolution of Sonar Pros kind of started evolving. I started developing the wiring harness just to get it to a point where it was a little bit more pretty um, to be able to, re to be a retailed product. Because um, originally the original wiring harness was just kind of um, still its core concept that is now with fuses and wire, but we just prettied it up with clean fuse assemblies, clean looking logos, um, braided covering, all that good stuff, and then just kind of developed it from there. And then eventually, um, I guess the year COVID hit, I, uh, my corporate sales job didn't have me traveling as much. So I was like, man, let me just get a little commercial space up the road and we'll we'll really try to push this. And then it quickly turned into, we were eight to 10 weeks on installs. And all of a sudden I've got six employees and we're shipping, you know, hundred harnesses a week. And it's it's uh, it's been, it hasn't lit up since then. I absolutely love that story going from yeah. taking an extension cord and just a, a random solution, right? We'll, right? we'll leave it at that. Just a, kind of a redneck solution to make it, you know, <laughs> it may not be pretty. It works all the way to a, to, to a business now where you could leave the, the corporate, you know, office type of job is yep. that's, that's a great story there. So one, when you were in college, uh, you said Georgia Southern, right? Yep. So what, what did you go to college for? Um, so my first year in college, um, I've always been kind of a gearhead. I used to take my dad's lawnmower apart and put it back together. So my first year in college, I actually went to Southern on a hybrid program where you could go to Southern and get a Georgia Tech degree. Um, I um, was trying not to spend a bunch of money going to Georgia Tech. So this was probably the best option for me. So my first semester at school, I went into school for mechanical engineering, thinking that it would actually have a hands-on approach with things. And I learned pretty quickly engineering is more around the idea and development of products, designs, maybe even just a gear. And you're pretty much in CAD for a lot of the day. Um, so I absolutely hated that. And then I trained, I changed my major to business management. I ended up graduating with uh, a degree in business management, a minor in marketing is what I ended up graduating with. But you know, the, the, the fun thing I learned about college is even though I had a business degree, it told me it taught me absolutely nothing about starting, running or managing a business. I mean, there is not a thing I learned in school except for my Excel class that helped me to running my business to this day. Isn't yeah. that interesting that mm -hmm. we dump 
hundreds of thousands of dollars, depending on who you are and where you go. And, and by no, no means, let me preface this by saying like getting a, a college level education isn't a bad thing, but you have no. to manage your expectations. Uh, you know, there are applicable degree plans that are, are for a specific skill set. Um, but I, along the same lines as you, didn't really, um, nothing really resonated from, from college for me that applies to what I do today. I'm sure there are some things that are like, you know, I just don't think about and I, I did learn them over time. But it's interesting how you did go for, you know, but you do own a business now. Yeah. But none of the stuff you did in college applied. So it is interesting when, when uh, you know, like I tell my kids, like, you don't have to go to college. It's your choice. You can go to college. Uh, but just manage your expectations accordingly. It's, that's, yeah, I that's think so true. I think that the tough, I mean, ultimately, just because I was in the corporate sales world for so long, if you want to live in that world, you got to have a college degree because ultimately what that does is it shows that you set an objective and completed it. That's really what college is, as far as an mm -hmm. undergrad is concerned. Mm -hmm. Now, if you go get a master's or you're a doctor, whatever, that's obviously really spe uh, a specialized field. and You're going to have a narrow focus. But yeah, when it when it came to starting my business and learning how to run it, I mean, no, I didn't learn anything from I mean, a lot of stuff I learned was just trial by error and YouTube and everything else. And, and luckily, I've got one of my good sponsors, uh, ALX Rides. Um, he's been a uh, the owner's name is Alex. He's been a really good business mentor to me. So when I got started and things kind of really started hitting the ground, I was just like, you know, I, he and I had multiple hour long phone calls where I was just like, hey, man, whoa, what did you do in this situation? And just kind of he's, he's been a good mentor for me as far as getting the business running. But, yeah, it's uh, it's been crazy because this thing took off way faster than I thought it would. You, you said mentor and, and that's something that I know really uh, like that is one of the things like if there's anything in, in, in the professional world, whatever that may be, finding the right mentor is extremely important, whether or not you're a small business owner, you're in a corporate job or whatever the case may be. I think those relationships are invaluable. Definitely. Um, before, uh, before I turn it over to you, Ben, I did have one question. Uh, so you go to college now that hub and spoke method deal kind of took off. And then you're like, Oh man, I got sonar pros going here. Let's turn this into what it is today, which sounds pretty large before all that, was there ever the mindset like, dude, I want to fish professionally? Not one time. Um, really? The reason being is I have enough friends that fish for a living. And I mean it by no disrespect to them because they, you know, Patrick being a good example, mm -hmm. that dude is the 1% of the 1%. He truly makes a living cashing checks. Um, now he has sponsor support and all that good stuff that a lot of people don't see in the professional limelight that makes fishing professionally an actual viable career. Um, but I saw enough guys that did it that I had absolutely zero interest in calling myself a pro in fishing for a living just because um, – I never wanted fishing to turn into a job because I knew if it turned into a job that I would probably lose passion for it. Um, uh, and I still, even, even, you know, winning this tournament, um, I have no interest in going full-time fishing. Really? Mm -hmm. Well, and that's what, that's what the MPFL offers though, right? Like it's not, you're not stacked with tournaments yep. all throughout the year. And yep. I know Pete, Pete, sit, Pete sitting up there selfishly at the beach uh, agrees with this and Ben too. I'm just kidding, Pete, by the way. Um, 
Dude, that is the one thing that I love about the MPFL format is the fact that you actually can, and I know a lot of guys do on the other trails, but you really truly can be a business owner, can work a job anywhere, have a career, whatever. Uh, and they really do cater to what we would consider the working man's uh, uh, demographic, if you will. Yeah, uh, that's 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 a big reason why I, I fished the MPFL last year. Um, to be honest with you, I kind of got tired of the Toyota. You know, I, I was fishing Toyotas and BFLs, and yeah. I kind of got tired of fishing the Toyota series because they op- the last year I fished it, they opened the field. We had like 260 boats, a tournament, and it just – I mean, it was – just a meat grinder as far as, I mean, I, I did well, but it's just, you had to find a needle in a haystack because you go to this point that you wanted to start on and there was 20 boats sitting on it. Mm-hmm. Um, so a big reason why I joined the MPFL last year, a lot of it had to do with uh, my buddy, Justin Kimmel introduced me to Paul and Brad. And um, um, once I laid it out, as far as, you know, I, I've always had pretty good sponsor support. I knew I could go to sponsors to get more money to, to support what in my eyes was going to be, um, a broader audience to possibly target than what we were getting out of the Toyota series. Um, but I saw it as a, a, a viable option to, to be able to fish at a professional level and, and make professional money, but also not have the burden of Holy crap, we're about to be on the road for nine weeks straight. Cause they do space those tournaments six to eight weeks out. And that's something I really enjoy is the fact that we have space between tournaments. The fact that we get an off day for me, as a business owner, that off day before the tournament is so important for me because it lets me get caught up emails, phone calls, talk to the guys at the shop, figure out what's happened the past couple of days. I've been gone to have a good reset before we start the tournament. Cause the last thing I want to have happen is I, you know, I get off the water day one in the tournament and my phone's got 342 text messages. Cause this, this, and that's going on. So really when it, when it came to fishing the MPFL, it kind of became a no brainer, even though, yeah, the entry fees were a lot higher than what I had been paying before but it became a no brainer because when I laid it out between what I knew I could get from sponsors, the space between events, and then potentially the, the, the payout um, for winning an event or anything like that, it really, it really laid out to make a lot of sense to fish it. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, you talk about, you know, fishing the BFLs and what I'm curious about, you know, I hate fishing around the crowd, a crowd personally. And, you know, I've been on the water in, in some of those bigger tournaments where there's two or 300 boats and it's just frustrating. Yeah, uh, you obviously did very well at that. But how is that transition to go from a, you know, fishing two, three, you know, 150 to 300 boat field to now with as much practice as you want right in the BFL to now you're going to a 75 man or 76 uh, angler tournament field with uh, just a couple of days of practice? And how's that transition work? And, I, and also along with that, I would imagine you being down in Georgia. Now you're going all across the country. And I, you probably don't have the experience in all these bodies of water either. Um, yeah. So the travel part really hasn't been that bad for me because the best part about college fishing was we being in, being Mm -hmm. in South Georgia, there was no lakes close to us. So we were doing the six to 10 hour hike anywhere we went. So I got a real good taste of, of fishing on the road in college. And then even when I did the Toyotas, you know, I fished, I didn't fish, the local division to me, I would do the Southern division or the, uh, the central division, which fished on fisheries that I just didn't fish a whole lot. Um, so, um, I've already, the, the travel part wasn't, wasn't necessarily an adjustment for me, but I mean, the biggest thing that, that really, that really, I think took me a minute to get a hang of. And in the first three events last year, I didn't have the finishes I wanted 
was that three-day practice period because I went from to what you mentioned earlier, Toyotas and BFLs, where I could be like, all right, the next three weekends in a row, let's go practice that lake to get ready for that BFL. Um, I went from that to, okay, now we got to be real smart about where we practice, when we practice, why we go over here, because you could very easily make a bad decision in practice and that entire day is burned. And now you're down to two days and then you're down to one day. Um, so really, I think the hardest adjustment for me was just going to that three-day practice period just because it it, it, it it's almost a tournament of itself because you got to make really good decisions on where you're practicing and why. Yeah, I think that's huge. If you got, hopefully you guys can hear me okay. And I apologize, there's a little bit of background noise. My family's uh, loud, but um, no <laughs> uh, you, a couple things I just wanted to touch on is like the huge fields, field size. You talk about like with the Toyotas and the BFLs. I've, I've fished a few of those uh, at the BFL level and stuff. And when you have 200, 245 boats, uh, it almost makes it an unenjoyable experience, like you were yep. saying. When you roll oh, up to uh, definitely you roll up to a spot and there's three boats sitting on it that you found fish, and it just makes it super frustrating. You know, I talked to uh, some of my buddies that are fishing the opens, uh, the EQs, and and didn't have great tournaments up on on the St. Lawrence, and that was one of them. When I talked to him, he's like, "My first four spots where I had fish had four boats on them the first day. Yep. Like, I got a late draw by the time you get there." Uh, and I just wanted to mention real quick, like the high school national championship is on Hartwell right now, like 485 boats. I got messages from some buddies of mine. That That's terrible. High school teams. Yeah. It is ridiculous. They, it is a solid wall of anchor running lights across the entirety of yeah. Lake Hartwell. Waiting there, there, there shouldn't be tournaments that big, especially on, I mean, you know, Neil Paul over in the chamber of commerce at Hartwell, he does a freaking awesome job bringing in tournaments. And I don't, I don't mean any disrespect to Neil saying this cause he's a buddy of mine, but there's gotta be eventually at some point in time on some of these lakes, we gotta have a cap. We, we can't, we can't have that many boats on the water. Cause it, it's going to take months for that fishery to recover from that. Oh, I mean, months. Um, it doesn't matter if everyone knows what they're doing or doesn't know what they're doing that many boats on the water, putting pressure on the lake drastically affects it. Now it's awesome alternatively to see how big the sport's gotten to see that high that that many high school teams are on the water. But um, yeah, a tournament like that. I mean, even when I did the Toyotas and we were dealing with 200 boats, the one thing I think you got to realize, and this was, this has been the nice thing about MPFL because it really hasn't been a problem. He's going to say it. the pressure, that pressure will change the lake every single day. The, the lake will drastically change. So fish you found the first day of practice, you might as well write them off because you're about to have 200 boats run over those fish and they're going to change entirely. Well, and also I thought you were going to say something I caught a lot of crap for with co-anglers, but it's not only mm. 200 anglers, yep. it's potentially 400 anglers. With co-anglers, yeah. Well, in the high school event, right, that's 800, right? That's 800 yeah. kids. That's over 800 kids. Yeah, right? that's that's like been my- a big change for me too. Is you know, no disrespect. I think the co angler pro, I think the co angler platform is great for BFLs. I think beyond that, there shouldn't be co anglers. I think agree. I think Bassmaster doing co anglers and the EQs is the most ridiculous thing ever. If you're if you're trying to filter, if you're trying to, and my buddy Ronnie Moore will probably jump, shoot me a text message about this, but um, whenever he sees this. But um, Trey agrees with you, and he caught a bunch of flag for that early in yeah, the year. Yeah, I think having co-anglers in the opens is absolutely ridiculous. If you're if you if you're going to have if you're going to have a format that is to filter guys into professional ranks, they need to be fishing like they're in the professional ranks, which means no co-anglers. Now, I'll, 
yeah, I might, I might catch some flack for saying that, but at the same time too, Bass has a business to run and why okay. only make revenue off of one person when you can put a second person in there and make revenue, no different than how Bass does the Marshall program They're You have to pay to be a Marshall. So they're making money off of two individuals in that boat. So I get why they do it, but for the MPFL, the no co-angler thing, again, I mean, no disrespect to co-anglers because I think it's a great platform to get started. I, I wish when I was in college, I had fished BFLs and Toyotas as a co-angler. I didn't, I just always stayed on the boater side of things. Um, I, I, the, the no co-anglers has probably been one of the best things I've had to deal with just because unfortunately in the years I did Toyotas and BFLs, I had some, I had some good co-anglers, but I also had some really bad ones. Um, and that can really affect a tournament. I, I know of two tournaments offhand that I really should have had the opportunity to win. Um, and they were directly impacted by my co-anglers. Yeah. Uh, it, it, so it's, you know, that's the great thing about the MPFL is that it's truly an individual format. You do not have someone in the back of the boat putting pressure on your fish, casting forward of you, um, you know, getting in your way or anything like that. And again, I mean, no disrespect to co-anglers because I think it's a great, great way to get into the ranks of tournament fishing. But when it comes to professional formats like your Toyotas, your Opens, your MPFL, your Tackle Warehouse Series, uh, there should not be co-anglers. In my yeah, I appreciate, I appreciate we got to talk about this because we've talked about it a bunch of times. Like, there's a point where where you shouldn't have co-anglers anymore. Like you said, EQs, MPFL, Toyotas, you're starting to try to make that push to the invitationals. Yep. Once you get to the invitationals, you don't have a co-angler, right? You're trying to make that push to, to, to get the, you know, invite to the BPT. Uh, there has to be a point as a, as an angler where you, you have to be able to fish for yourself. And there is pressure, no matter who you talk to, if you have a co-angler, good, bad, or indifferent, you don't want that guy to zero. So you, it affects the way you fish a little bit too. You yeah. try not to say it doesn't, but at hundred percent, everybody I've talked to says that it does. Yeah. Um, it, it is a great platform to get started, but I, I agreed with Trey on the EQ side of things. Ronnie, I hope you do listen to this. Don't give Trent too much, uh, too much. It's anglers, right? I love bass. I'm a fan of BSS, the way they do things. I'm well-versed in, in some other uh, leagues and how I feel about the way they do things, but we'll stick with uh, BSS on this one. So it's, it's criticism from fans and potential anglers someday, right? Like yep. this is what we see you could do better. So hopefully, you know, hearing it from some other folks will, will help them see. And, and I've heard scuttlebutt, who knows if it's true or not, that there might be some changes coming for next year. So we'll, we'll see what that would actually leads to. I, I don't re remember the invitational series. Do they have co-anglers? They don't No. No, they do. And what about their, um, but they do at their Toyota series. Yeah. Toyota, Toyota series. series. They do. Yep. Toyota series. Do. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. I, and Trent, you brought a good point. Like it's a business and the sport's growing. We want people involved, but yeah, I think, I think we're all coming to the agreement. If, if there's a qualification process, right. There should probably be echelons where you eventually you phase out those co-anglers and, and, and cap the field yep. because you, we, Pete, you were talking about some really good anglers. They found fish in practice. All four or five spots they pull up on, you know, there's people there. And sometimes there's there may be a lot of some of the better anglers because it just happened to be a late boat draw for whatever reason, right? You know, when everything flushes out, they don't perform that well. And and maybe maybe the cream's not rising to the crop when you have a thousand boats right in the body of water or bumper to bumper or gunner to gunner next to each other. And, the, and when you're fishing a BFL, like, you kind of go into it, you know that that that's going to happen. It's not a huge entry fee, yep. like. But when you're at the EQs now and you're running into that because you're running at the same time as an opens, 
Uh, you have, and I no disrespect to any elite series guy that drops down to try to qualify for the classic. Like I totally get why you're doing it, but those guys are trying to get a shot to go to the show, right? Like throwing a bunch of other people at them and adversity and things is unfair to them that are, are busting their tails to get sponsor dollars, uh, you know, to just be able to fish. Some, some guys are doing it out of their own pocket. They're going to regret making that decision. I guarantee it, but you know, they're trying to do that. And, and that's why we've been big fans of the MPFL because they kind of took, they took pieces from everything and put it into the series. The I really, you know, we had Brad and Paul on. I don't know if you got a chance to listen, but we got to talk about their thought process going into vetting anglers and all that, and them being able to control who comes and and who doesn't helps them weed through, not just getting somebody that has a lucky tournament or two lucky tournaments, and and the angling side of things is the most important. It's really about the culture of the, of the guys, you know, good people. We've yep. had Mike Corbishley on. He's a good friend of us. I know you and Mike are close. You've, you've rigged Mike's boat. Uh, watching you, Mike and Patrick on the last day of the last event and the way you interacted, everybody was genuinely excited for the other one as people were flopping around. And then, you know, when you, when you eventually won by, I think it was two ounces, right? Like, yep. They they showed you know they showed everybody and everybody was just excited to see you raise that if they if they had done it and I think you you help we know and that's a reason why we're fan is you garner that culture with the format it's it's the anglers you all are kind of you're fishing against each other but you've almost become a family at this point because we get a couple weeks away from each other six eight weeks we come back together everybody's everybody's fishing for a common goal and it's just it's been really fun to watch and I'm glad we got to talk a little bit about the, uh, the qualification and, and some of the other, other things, but the big question, I guess the big thing I want to have, and I want, or wanted to, to mention as we're starting to get kind of into the event, um, Patrick cut his fishing day short to come in and help you. I know you guys are buddies yep. uh, from everybody. I know that actually knows Patrick. I think he would do that for just about anybody if they needed help, not just because you guys were friends. Yep. That I, I'm not going to say you won't see that everywhere, but you may not see that everywhere. And I think uh, Patrick is an excellent uh, Trent. You've been an excellent Mike is an excellent representation of kind of what we used to see with the sport of bat fi- bass fishing. You've seen everybody. I don't want to say everybody. A lot of folks have gotten a, gotten a misconstrued kind of image of the folks that do it because of social media, because yep. of uh, some of the drama that's out there with social media, because of some of the cheating and things like that. Uh, so just, I want to give you a minute to, to kind of talk through that. And if there was, was there ever any hesitation on reaching out to anybody to help or, or did you kind no, of, know I mean, my situation with last week and, and for context for the viewers, um, I was dealing with a motor issue pretty much since the last day of practice. So I guess to give a little backstory up to the point where, you know, I gave Patrick the phone call to come help, um, Back at Santee Cooper, I dealt with an issue where my motor went into guardian mode due to low oil pressure. Um, luckily, at that tournament, we had a local dealer supporting us, and I was able to get what we thought was the issue being an uh, oil pressure sensor. We swapped it, and then I had no issues the rest of that event. So coming so into was, that, do what? What's guardian mode for everyone out there? Yeah, so guardian – so um, most modern engines these days, they have what's called an ECU, which is essentially a computer that, mm-hmm. um, or ECM, depending on which company you deal with. But um, they essentially have a computer that monitors all the sensors in the engine. And if there is any situation where a sensor is not responding properly or it's reading a low reading, in this case, it was low oil pressure, 
Um, it will shut the engine. It'll completely shut the engine down to try to save itself from catastrophic failure. So um, in my situation, when the oil pressure would hit zero PSI, uh, the engine would immediately shut off. Um, it would pump, bump me down to idle. Alarm goes off and it pretty much makes it to where the engine is non-usable other than idling. Um, so um, after Santee Cooper, um, I went and did something I normally don't do for MPFL events. I went and pre-practiced for two days. Um, Corbishly actually came up with me and we practiced uh, in, in our own boats, but we were there together. Um, I did that really mainly to break down what I had learned the year before because I really wanted to um, expand on that area where I'd caught them well the year before. Um, and uh, had those two days of practice. I then went on uh, after preceding the lake going off limits. I went on a week-long vacation at our family cottage in Wisconsin. Used my boat that whole week. No problems. Come to the event. One, all Pretty much all three days of practice had no problems. And then on my run in, I had about a 40 mile run into the boat ramp at the end of day three practice. And I got put in guardian mode twice. And then I started watching the oil pressure because I pulled it up. I've got integration between my engine and my electronics. Um, I started watching the oil pressure and it was just fluctuating up and down. It was like two PSI, 28 PSI, 70 PSI, zero. And then it put me in guardian again. I was like, all right, we got a problem. So Again, luckily to what MPFL offers, we got an off day. In this case, the off day was going to be my day to try to get this sorted out. So first thing I did that morning was I went ahead and did an oil change, just trying to figure out if we had a problem with maybe bad oil I got. Who knows? So I changed the oil, um, called Sean Mulhall, who's our tournament director. He and I went out on the river and water tested the boat um, per his um, um, approval and uh after that oil change, it got even worse. And I was like, all right, we got a problem. We got a major problem. Well, what we started figuring out was on the previous oil, I was on 2540. And that oil change, I the only thing I could get my hands on was 10W30, um, which is what Mo Mercury originally recommended for oil. Uh, they eventually changed from 10W30 to 2540 just to reduce uh, oil blow by in the piston, which was causing low oil situations because oil was burning. So we immediately, I immediately realized, holy crap, this engine is responding to different weights oil, which is changing how often it's dropping oil pressure. That means we got a mechanical problem. This is not a sensor. This engine's directly responding to different weight oil. So per advisement from um, Amy at Palmetto Boat Center, who's my sponsoring dealer, and uh, Amy runs one of the best shops in the country. She is who I, we call her the boat squirrel. She is who I call if I have a if I if I have a problem that I can't resolve, she is my first phone call. So she was like, hey, go get some heavyweight oil. Try to find some Verado 2550. So we put 2550 in there, and sure enough, the engine was a little happier. So um, I then during that off day went to six Mercury dealers. Or I shouldn't say Mercury dealers, I went to six dealers. The last one I went to was actually a Mercury franchise and they were the only ones who offered to help me. And all I was, I pretty much went to all of them and I said, I just need someone to do a compression test on this engine. Cause if it still has compression, I felt comfortable using it. If it didn't have compression, that means we had pretty much a blown cylinder and, and it was yeah. game over. We need to find a backup boat. So finally my last dealer was, I think Bay city outboard, um, in Bay city. Um, the guy there, the, the mechanic actually ended up being a tournament guy and he was freaking awesome. He's like, dude, back in the Bay, we did compression test, it compressioned fine. And then he and I just started theorizing, Hey, more than likely 
Uh, you got to maybe have an oil pump going bad, or you might have uh, a, a, a ring going bad. And I know this is a really long story leading up to Patrick's day, no, but just tell to give it all, tell it all. of what yeah. was happening. So day one in the tournament, we blast off. I make my two and a half hour run to my first spot based on the, cause we had about three to four footers that morning. So it took a little while to get out there in the last 10 minutes of my run. It started alarming again. And I'm like, man, that's weird, but whatever we'll get there. So we got there, got my 18 and a half. The wind started getting bad. Patrick and Mike and I were all around each other. So we all agreed to run in together. We made our run in. It shut me down about three times, but we made it in. So when I got into, when I got into uh, back to the house that afternoon, I had bought extra oil the day before. Cause I was like, maybe I'll have to do an oil change again. So we went and changed the oil. And when I drained the oil after that day, the first thing that came out was not oil. It was fuel. A ton of fuel dumped out of the drain plug. And I was like, holy crap, this thing's making oil, which if any of your viewers have ever had a Yamaha show, the first generation Yamaha shows, they were notorious for making oil, which essentially a situation making oil essentially means fuel is getting past the combustion chamber, making it into the crankcase, mixing with oil and then making oil. So it'll actually add oil. So when I drained oil that day, I had an extra quart and a half than what I had put in. So we, I knew immediately what was going on then. I more than likely had, I talked to Amy, she and I discussed what was probably happening. And we pretty much determined that we probably had a cracked ring on the back of the piston, not a compression ring, but the rear ring that kind of separates fuel from, from uh, the crankcase. So pretty much made the decision from that day forward, we were going to do an oil change every day. So every day of the tournament, I did an oil change and it was the same thing every day, more fuel, (laughs) more oil. Um, and, and, you know, the engine was running healthy. I mean, if I kept it under 39 miles an hour, which is essentially under 4,000 4, RPMs, it stayed pretty happy. I mean, it, the, the problem with that, the, the, the biggest issue with that problem I had is the more I used the engine, the worse it got, because when that fuel and oil mix, it thins the oil out. So the oil goes from, you know, being a relatively thick consistency to by the end of the day, it was practically alcohol. Uh, it was like water coming out of the engine. And was it was probably smoking pretty bad too? Then right, start burning. Um, it actually wasn't smoking that bad because since the oil or since the fuel was getting past combustion into the crankcase, it wasn't igniting the fuel in the chamber. So oh, more okay. than likely that the, the more than likely the engine was running somewhat lean. Um, or actually, I take that back. It, pro- it wasn't running lean. It was running a little fat. I mean, it had a it, this the engine smelled really really consistent consistently of of uh of of fuel for the most part um uh but uh so that last day i made my run out and i could audibly tell the engine was having issues i mean it it was bogging real bad um i it it alarmed me i think 13 times getting out there it put me in guardian mode 13 times making the run out so when I got to my first spot that morning, um, I caught him pretty quick. And then when we got a lull, I went ahead and called, called Sean Mulhall and I contacted Patrick. And I said, hey, man, just to give you a heads up, this engine's having problems. Just make sure your ringer's on today. And I made the same phone call to Corbishly per Mulhall's approval. For anything I discussed during this story of contacting anglers, that was all done 
by me first contacting our tournament director and getting approval to do so. Um, <clears throat> so uh, I had given Patrick a heads up that I was having problems. Um, during the first, during that last day of the tournament, I caught most of my weight that morning. I think um, I said on live, my fish, my smallest fish was like a 378. That, that was actually a lie. It was a 401. I knew how big my smallest fish was. Um, I knew I needed a five pounder. So I made the decision to make a run uh, 13 miles from that main spot to uh, a secondary area that all three of us were, were generally congregating around. Well, when I made that 13 mile run, that engine went from making oil to burning oil. And I had a smoke screen behind the boat. So I had a, the day before, I always knew that when the engine was getting ready to let go, it would go from burning or making oil to burning oil. Yeah. Uh, so when I got to that spot, I fished. I think I caught a couple three and a half, small three and a half that just didn't help. And I threw them back. Um, and I went to get on plane and it went to Guardian on plane. But I noticed the oil pressure dropped the minute the boat built angle in it trying to get on plane. So I was like, I bet this thing has got low oil. So I pulled the dipstick. Sure enough, it's got low oil. I knew that more than likely this would be a problem. So I put an extra uh, gallon jug of oil in my boat. And if you go back to the live feed, you'll see a point in time at the end of day three where I'm dumping oil into the engine. Um, made that once I got oil in the engine, I made the run back to my primary spot. And then that's when I made the final phone or made uh, the second to last phone call to Patrick. And I said, hey, dude, this engine's really hurt now. Um, I'm going to stay here, stay here till 245. Um, if you see a phone call after 245, she blew up. Well, sure enough, I got on plane at 245. It went about a mile and then she let go. Um, she no longer had any oil pressure. Um, and the engine just simply, it, the, it would not let me get on plane because it had zero um, oil pressure. So made the phone call to Patrick. And uh, to get us caught up to what your initial question was, um, I made that phone call to Patrick. I cut his day probably about 20 to 25 minutes short um, by making him come, you know, having him come and help me. Um, so I made the phone call to Patrick. I said, dude, she let go. He's like, where are you at? I said, I'm about a mile down from you. Um, he came over there and then uh, pulled up. And then we pretty much got the fish out of my boat, put him in his boat. Uh, his camera guy got my boat. Her approval from the tournament director, they could idle my boat back to a ramp that was about six miles away. And then Patrick and I ran in together. And, the, you know, we 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 see so much uh, in the the stratosphere of the social media realm. Um, this is I, I heard this before, and, and I'm glad that you talked about this, because this is the positivity that mm -hmm. like we need to shed across the spectrum um you know pete uh ben and i have you know kind of coined our 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 narrative if you will is like we need to cultivate an environment of anglers helping anglers one cast at a time and that's really what yep. you know this right here demonstrates and this is just one i'm sure of many uh things that happens and, and you know when we talk to brad and paul about this and i know we got on that tangent about co-anglers and stuff but you had said something like i didn't really I didn't want to turn fishing into a profession or a job because then it would, it wouldn't be fun anymore. So do you, in, in the environment that the MPFL talking to Brad and, and Paul and actually getting to go down there to Santee and see you guys, and we're going to come to Lanier as well. We really did feel that. Is that how you feel as an angler uh, on the MPFL tour that, that you guys have an environment that's a little bit different than everyone else's? 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely I would give it the family atmosphere. I mean, you know, ownership being, you know, Brad, Paul and the gang, they're always available in the event that you have something you need to discuss. Um, the anglers are an absolutely outstanding bunch of guys. I know um, I know if I made a phone call to any angler, they'd come help me and vice versa. I mean, it's it's uh, even though we're all competitors, I mean, it's we have a common goal with the MPFL and that's to see it succeed. And, and right. that not only comes from ownership and management, but that comes from the angler level. Um, and I think we all have a common goal. We want this thing to be successful. And it really strives home that family environment. I mean, there's there's not a guy that you run into at the gas station, whether it's after practice, after tur- after the tournament day or just, you know, whenever. There's not a guy you don't run into that you're like, man, that guy, you know, doesn't want to be my friend per se. I mean, everyone, you know, everyone can say, hey, bud, how'd it go today? And it, it, it is an absolutely outstanding um, out, I mean, outstanding group of guys. And I think to the testament of what Patrick did for me, I mean, he, he and I were neck and neck in this thing. And, um, he put forth making sure that, that I made it in with my fish before his. And, and, you know, when it comes to smallmouth fishing now, granted our bite kind of had died after 12, when that front came in, he and I both hadn't made any coals after that. Um, but him sacrificing those 25 minutes, I mean, very well could have been the time he needed to beat me. Um, so it, 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 100%. I mean, I, I owe a debt of gratitude for him for bringing me in. Getting, getting and I appreciate you. I was, was going to say, I appreciate you sharing that the entire like story and background because, you know, you read about it or you might be a little clip and it just says boat issues, right? And the yep. extent that you had and one, one, the mindset, right? That had the mess, I mean, mess with you or to be able to compartmentalize that to still go out there and catch your fish. And then have Patrick to come help, who is, yeah, he's right. He, when he was second, he was right there with you. And then Mike being willing to, and he, yeah, he was right up there too, you know, yep. potentially, you know, depending on how things work out over those three days. So, you know, that it, it's a great, with all the negativity that, that, you know, we mentioned in the beginning, I mean, this is a great positive story influence. And this is the way like bass fishing should be done. Absolutely. 100%. Was there, when, when, when you were, I, I did want to ask a question. And, and I already know the answer. What there was never, I guess it's a more of a statement, but kind of a question. There was never a question in your mind before you made the decision to do something that, that could have put you in a position. You were a hundred percent confident on calling the tournament director. Correct. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, I had, you know, since Sean had gone out with me that day to test the boat, you know, I had already, you know, I had already discussed with him, Hey, um, you know, in the event something goes wrong, what do you need me to do? What's the procedure? And Sean walked me through it. Um, and actually, when I when I broke down that last day, my first phone call was actually to Mike. Um, I tried to get a hold of Mike first just because I, Patrick was my last resource, considering, you know, earlier that day we had ran into each other. Um, it's actually on live. It's kind of funny. Uh, so I Patrick is has. I think in, I think at USC they don't teach math real well. That's my that's what I <laughs> that's what I think. Because um, the day before he told me he had 17 pounds and he really had 22. So Patrick's math is weird. You got to add like four or five pounds to whatever he says. So that day, day three, when I went to that secondary area, um, he and I crossed paths because it was a mutual area we had both fished. And he pulled up and I said, what you got? And he goes, I got about 17. So I'm like, crap, he's got 22 again. (laughs) Well, earlier in the day, I had already told myself, if we see Patrick, we're lying to him. Like I was excited 
to lie to his face about my weight because he does it to me all the time. So I saw him and I said, I'm going to get this. Son of a I knew, I knew I had over 22. I knew for a fact I had over 22. And when he came up and I told him, Hey, I got 18. He was like, you got 18. And if anyone knows me, I am the worst liar there is. I smirk and smile and do stupid stuff with my face when I lie. And I gave him a little smirk. And Luke Duncan, actually, when I was on his podcast, made mention of it. He said, man, after the two of y'all talked, his demeanor totally changed. He knew you had him. And it made him really focus up on what was going on. Um, So, like, I knew when we intersected that he was having a decent day and I was obviously having a good day. Um, So when my motor broke down, I actually first tried calling Corbishly. And uh, I think I called him four times and sent him three texts saying help with all explanation points. Well, Corbishly was run because he had ran further than us. He was actually running in a dead cell phone zone for about 40 minutes. So he couldn't he he didn't get my text till he got to the idle zone. So after I couldn't get a hold of Corbishly, I then called Patrick because Patrick was going to be my last resort. I didn't want to affect his day. And again, back to the point, you know, when I called him, I think 30 seconds later, I heard his engine crank up and he was hauling ass to me. Yeah, I was just going to say, um, I got to see that interaction on live and you, you could definitely tell like he, he saw through that and saw you saw him, him make a change. But the fact that there was no hesitation from him. And like I said, it, you guys are friends, obviously you've known each other, but it, he would have done it for anybody yeah. from anybody I've ever met that knows Patrick. If somebody was out there and needed help, he would have done it. And it really just speaks to the sportsmanship. Because, like you said, it was two ounces, and he could have easily just looked at that phone and went, "Uh, I could probably fish for another 10, 15 minutes, (laughs) maybe catch another fish. But, no, he knew knew you needed help uh, to get back in to make sure you both could get back in. And, he, you know, he dropped what he was doing. He he cut himself short uh, and came over and gave you, you know, gave you that run back in. So it was just – it was really cool to see that. Not that we – you know, we've seen it at other levels. It's been a little while. Uh, We've seen it at the elite level where they've made a call and had, had to get some help before. Yep. Um, but it's always it's always good to see because everything we see blown up in media and social media and TikTok is is negative. Is so and so cheating? Did so and so do this? Yep. Blah 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 blah. So you know to see that at the forefront and to be able to talk about it and, and maybe bring some folks who didn't get to watch the event the story uh, to just let you know like it's uh, you know there's still a lot of really good folks in the industry and in this and it's not all what you see. Uh, would you see out there on social media uh, with, with TikTok and all that? So it was uh, it was awesome to see. I did want to ask one question about the MPFL because you talked about fishing and not wanting to fish for a living. We all of us have friends that do it for a living or attempt to do it for a living. We know the stress and the struggles, and I totally get uh, you know the loss of the fun factor when you're grinding to make sure you get a check. All of that. Do you feel like obviously the MPFL? gets you to national level you're traveling around the country you're fishing against a lot of really really good anglers do you feel that because of the culture that they have cultivated within the npfl and you said it's almost feels like family that that fun factor doesn't really get impacted even though there's a hundred thousand dollar pressure because there is pressure inherent to that type of money Uh, but it does does it not feel as heavy because of the culture that they've cultivated with with the NPFL and kind of how the league is run. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I definitely think the way it's, it's ran helps with that. I, I, everyone. So I'm not going to just flat out say there's no financial pressure on it. I mean, um, I'm, cause I know there's guys that absolutely are grinding to, to, mm-hmm. to fish the NPFL. And, um, 
I'm in a fortunate position where um, I've built some really great partnerships through my business and through the years of tournament fishing. So for me, I've got really good sponsor support that makes fishing the MPFL a pretty uh, net profit situation for me, even if I don't cash a check in every tournament. Um, so I'm not going to I'm not going to simply just say, hey, there's no there's no pressure. Like if I don't cash a check, I'm still having a good time because that's that's not necessarily the case. Right. Um, but overall, you know, the 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 atmosphere, the way the tournament functions operationally, they literally run the best tournament there is on, on bar none um, from way in to blast off to just the whole format. Um, the, the great thing about it is, you know, it, it definitely doesn't have the pressure that I've had with other tournament series. Um at least for me, it feels that way. Um, and the other thing too, is it really gives a platform to start growing yourself as, as an angler in, in a brand. Um, you know, we get the unique atmet- the unique situation where they have those portable cameras they can put in anyone's boat. They've got the live show that's starting to grow in audience with every event. Um, and they do a great job with the website and the social media. So, you know, overall, I mean, I can't, again, I can't say nothing good, anything good about, or I can say pretty much nothing good about the MPFL overall. So, and, and that's, that's to say all the good things and they're also doing it at a, at some disadvantage, right? There is no, there are no service crews that follow the the league around, right? Um, There is a lack of, uh, there's a lack of buy-in from certain organizations right now to get behind the MPFL and Brad and Paul were very clear about that. Um, But nevertheless, uh, they are, as we would say in the army, they're Charlie Mike and they're continuing mission. They're getting after it and they're putting what appears to be, uh, the anglers, uh, in the spotlight, you know, like that, that's an opportunity for you guys to continue to build your portfolio and your resume at the national level, uh, and give some, give some good feedback to your, your sponsors and supporters and stuff like that. Um, and they do it with very limited manpower. They do it with very limited resources and it's extremely streamlined. And the cool thing about, and I just want to caveat to kind of what you were saying about uh, the family environment is when you go in uh, and, and this, the other leagues have been around just for a really long time, man. They just, they're, they're business, you know, and I'm not yep. saying there's not a family environment and stuff like that, but after the weigh-ins, people still hang around and talk, you know, they yep. still communicate. They still have a good time. They go to the food trucks, they get food together. Um, and I think on the other, because the other tournament series are so large, so many people, which is great for income or for the business, but people are like, dude, I'm ready to pack it up and go. Cause I don't want to hit traffic on the way home. Yep. Yeah. Trent, you brought up a great point. I just want to, I want to go back to what I said about, you know, the lack of financial pressure and things like that. Like I meant specifically in your case, because you, yep. you, you're very, and I know, you know, you're fortunate to have the network of sponsors and things like that. So it was any of the other NPFL anglers that watch it was no disrespect or question. I know there is those of you that do feel that a bit more, but specifically I was just curious how it was for you yep. uh, because, because you are in a, a unique position where you, you have support and you've built that through college and, and the Toyotas and, and business dealings and all of that. So uh, it's also great to see anglers like yourself uh, and some others that are fishing it and they are getting support from their sponsors to specifically fish the MPFL because we we've talked to some other folks that maybe had interest. Uh, they couldn't really do it on their own. And when they went to their sponsors, they were kind of like, uh, there's really not a lot of ROI on us. I, I don't know if we see, you know, the value, blah, blah, blah. And, I, I, and to have sponsors behind you and some, some other anglers that are getting in early, 
uh, with what the league is doing uh, speaks volumes to the companies you work with. And, and I'm sure Trey and Ben talked to you before starting that we'll give you opportunity to shout all them out. But uh, it's really awesome to see more and more anglers have more sponsor support in the league and, and help to grow the league uh, to, to I think we all see it becoming one day. And um, just uh, appreciate, uh, appreciate, you know, you sharing a little bit of insight as an angler to, to kind of how you feel fishing with them. Yeah. And it's the sponsor thing's interesting. Cause I think, cause I, I, I worked, I used to manage a, a national pro staff for a while. Um, and I think, a lot of times, the and I'll say this from a business owner in the industry, uh, sponsorship or pro staff has kind of turned into a four-letter F word, in my opinion. Because yeah. um, a lot of people get hyper-focused. I'm, pro- I'm probably going to say the opposite of what some large corporations look for, but a lot of people get hyper-focused on the social media game, which is great. Don't get me wrong. Social media is a great way to get brand exposure. But I think the problem these days, and this is where a lot of my partnerships have, have just naturally come from my business. And I think a lot of people, what a lot of people don't realize, the ultimate goal with a sponsorship is you're going to make your goal. Your job is to make money for that business. If they're going to give you five thousand dollars to cover an entry fee, they need to make at least three X off of what they invested on in you. At least that's how I look at it from my business. If I'm going to invest in an angler. I better make at least two times or three times my money that I've invested into them back. And I think a lot of people don't either don't understand or don't realize the importance of that. Cause like when I have people approach me about sponsors, first thing I'll ask them is, well, have you done business with us? So have, are you a previous customer of mine? If not, how do you plan to bring, bring revenue to my business? And if you just tell me, Oh, I've got 10,000 followers and I make 10 posts a month for you. I don't care. That's not going to tell me. That's not going to tell me how much money you're going to make me. Give me a business plan. Tell me what yeah. dealers in your region you know can carry our harnesses, or tell me how your region, how you can get customers from your region to come get installs from us. You know, um, and I think the the what I've really honed in on with my sponsors because I have a large non-endemic sponsor. I'm sponsored by Copper Creek Hardware. Um, they make doorknobs and door handles. They've been one of my longest sponsors um, for a really long time. And, and for him, I, I know that he gets a, a business benefit out of our partnership because he's shown me the numbers that I've generated for him. No different than, um, you know, I have endemic sponsors as well, like Boat Logics Mounts. I, me being a boat rigger, um, we touch thousands of, we've touched thousands of boats. There is bar none, no better mount company out there than Boat Logics. And we move a lot of product for him, which is why he's on my logo or on my boat wrap. Because um, number one, the owner of that company, David, he's a good friend of mine. We talk all the time. Um, and then number two, we move a lot of product for him, which makes sense for us to have a mutual partnership. No different than X2 Batteries. Um, X2 Batteries is another large sponsor of mine. Uh, I think we go through 30 or 40 of their AGMs a month. Um plus their lithiums we do for standalone lithium kits. Um, same thing. We're moving product for them. And I think ultimately when it comes to sponsors, a lot of people just, the, the social media game, just it makes it so easy to get fun, you know tunnel vision on that. Because honestly, like from a business owner perspective, I don't care how many followers you are, you have. All <laughs> I care about is how much business you generate for my business. You know, I know we've been bouncing around and, and I definitely want to, we definitely need to talk about that blue trophy because i want to end we want to end this on a really positive note and i want to talk about some funny stories that we talked about previous to coming on air 
But I want to circle back to what you're talking about. You said one of the things we talked about this before with so like social media, like, yeah, you should have a social media following. If you don't anymore, it's kind of weird. But there is, from my perspective, one critical element that a lot of people are lacking these days, and that's communication and social skills. Yep. And so, and, and, and I want you to weigh in on this, Trent, but if you don't know how to talk to people, and build a relationship based on some sort of value and trust, you're going to have a hard time moving product. Like just because you have 10.3 thousand followers on whatever social media page, that is nothing more than a static measure of performance. It does nothing, right? The dynamic that goes along with that is how do you talk to people and how do you move product? Yep. From your business perspective, what, what are your thoughts on our the, the current generation, the newer generations, their ability to communicate. So I'll, I'll say this, because this is a question I've asked a lot of people. When was the last time you saw an Instagram post and it made you go buy something? Uh, no, I don't remember. Well, yeah, I, I can't tell you. For- you don't want me to answer that because I have compulsive buying. Habits okay. Too. Well, that's it. <laughs> uh, and, 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 but, and I said that, and I said that from my perspective, cause we run IG, Facebook, TikTok ads and all, and it, it does get people to buy, buy some product. It, 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 it's, it does. it's not as much as it's not as much as what people think it does. It's, exactly. It's, it's, that's, it's that's my point in saying that, like I'll scroll and see some great products on social media and it'll probably get stored in the back of my brain. Uh, I need to go check that out later. But the, you know, for the most part, your consumer base is not going to just impulse buy off of some social media post. Um, and uh, uh, heck, I don't, what was your question again? I don't remember now. <laughs> um, I, I was asking, like, from your perspective, the generation oh, the communication, the communication, like yeah. actual engagement skills. Um, it's interesting because it's interesting you ask that because um, a, a, a large, I'm not going to say a, a good amount for my employees are younger kids. They're, they're high school and college kids. Um, I've kind of found a niche where, um, I have, because my, my, my business started off of bad shops, meaning what the industry had been doing before was not working as far as installs are concerned. And I got a lot of business off of other people's bad installs. So when I really started growing this business, I had a hard time hiring people because I would hire people with experience. And I ran into the problem of old dog, new tricks scenario, right? And the reason I say that to kind of go off on a tangent there is I deal with a lot of the younger uh, youth because again, I'm dealing with high school and college kids of that generation. And 100%, it might be just because I'm older than them, um, <laughs> but there there are, because I've we've, we've cycled through, you know, I've got a good group of six guys that work for me but we've cycled through some of their friends and it's alarming how a lot of them don't have great communication skills at all. Now, the four guys that work for me now, they are great. I mean, I, and I'm not going to just say it's all because of me, but I feel like I've tried to do what I can to teach them communication, teach them how to have good work ethic, teach them how to have pride in your work. Um, but I think 100% there is a gap in, with, with communication and this will probably make me, even though I'm only 32, but it'll make me sound old. I think the day and age of social media, video games, and all this stuff has really had a degrading effect on the way people communicate these days. Yeah, we, we've I, talked about it before, Trent. Uh, you know, I'm 37, so I, I started on some pro staffs and doing stuff uh, more in the hunting industry than fishing back then. But 
there was no social media when I started that. So I earned my keep and showed my worth going to shows and, and doing seminars and talking to people and, and showing product. And, and we've talked about it a bunch. So to hear you kind of reconfirm what we've said, like those are the, the dying communication skills because of social media. Everybody, instead of going out with their friends, goes home and sits in front of their computer with a headset on and, and plays a video game. And um, it's interesting to, to hear that confirmed from another business owner. Cause I know Ben, we see it with his, with his company, with the, the jig company that he owns, you know, you have folks and I'm sure you get the message all the time. I just want, I want a real quick train and I'll let you go. Like how many messages do you get that just says like, <laughs> send me stuff and I'll get you. I'll get you people to look at it. Can you can you sponsor me, Trent? Yeah. I, I have a thousand followers. Yeah, it's uh I it's I, I at least get twenty or thirty of those a day easily. Yeah. I mean it's it's unfortunate because pretty much for the most part what I do, if you just send me an email saying you want to be sponsored, that email gets deleted. If you yeah. send me a DM that says you want to get sponsored and there's no business plan attached, so there's no anything. I mean, I, I don't even, if, even if you send me a resume, I don't care. Again, if, if you want to, if you want to impress me and get on board with working with us, shoot me a message with just, just shoot me a blank DM with an attached business plan of how you will make me money. And I promise you'll get a phone call from me. If you reach out to me and just say, Hey, I want to be sponsored or Hey, I got this many followers. Your message is not getting responded to and you're getting and the message is getting deleted. Uh, to kind of, piggyback off Pete's question. He asked how many people, how many anglers, you don't have to say like at professional level or, you know, co collegiate level or anything, but like how many anglers like <laughs> reach out to you that are actually fishing some really high events? How many, how many reach out to you in that aspect? Is it a lot? Um, we've got a, we've got a good portfolio of anglers that use our product. I mean, we've got, um, I think this year, as far as elite series boats, we rigged 38 elite series boats. Um, I've got close to including those boats. I think we've got 45 ish, maybe 50 ish that use our harness. Um, uh, and then we also got some Bass Pro Tour guys that use our product. Um, some pretty big names use our product. A lot of them we don't have direct affiliation with other than they use our product. I don't like to, unless I have some sort of agreement with them, I don't like to showcase that yeah. they're buying a harness from us, you know? Right. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, we got some, I mean, Chris Zaldane uses my harness. Uh, Brandon Polnick uses my harness. Chris and Brandon, I talked to him on a pretty frequent, or not frequent, but right basis, but a decent basis. And then, you know, Patrick, Drew Cook, Drew Benton. I mean, the list goes on as far as anglers that use us. But we got, um, yeah, I get contacted by anglers pretty frequently. A lot of it has to do too with even anglers that don't use my product is um, asking questions about, you know, they're wanting to add some unique sonar to the transom of the boat because that's been pretty popular lately that I've tried to keep hush-hush because it's something I'm running on my boat that I want to keep quiet. Um, so there's been a, there's a lot of conversations I have about what we can evolve with the technology too. Uh, the last thing I want to ask on the communication thing, um, there there's something that kind of – this is just a personal thing. And, and it, I listen, I, I negotiate – like part of my career is negotiations and stuff like that. And uh, – if there's one thing that just bothers me is like when, when somebody gets on stage and doesn't know how to talk to the crowd or at least give their sponsors that little bit of shout out or how that one tool for the trade, like helped you get back to the boat ramp or however you, does that ever, 
do you ever key in on that stuff? Like when anglers are on stage and they just don't know how to effectively communicate to the crowd? Yeah. And I think a lot of that has to come down with experience. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it also depends on the type of sponsors you have. I mean, um, I, I know it, what, what bothered me when I won, there was a couple guys I left off um, that are really good supporters of mine. A lot of that had to do was that I was trying to hold back tears as good as, as well as I could. Cause when my girlfriend came on the stage, she was bawling her eyes out and I was just like, Holy crap, I can't take this right now. Uh, but yeah, I mean, um, I think a lot of it has to come down with experience. I mean, um, and the type of partnerships you have, because, you know, if you're just dealing with 10% off product, you're probably not as uh, emotionally invested to, to, to think about how you talk about that company on the stage. But yeah. 100%, when it comes to promoting yourself as a brand and an angler, effective communication is by far the most important thing. And, and to your point, you know, just being able to talk and being able to communicate and being able ultimately to sell is probably the most important thing. You know, I, I wish you would get hit up, not for will you sponsor me, but will you be a mentor for me? Yeah, uh, because I think that's one of the the key things that if I was if I was going to try to jump into the national level circuit, you you bet your butt that I'm going to reach out to some guys I know and be like, hey man, I don't need a sponsorship. I need a mentorship. Yeah, I need definitely. somebody to help coach me through this process that I'm about to. It, it's like drinking from a fire hose. Yeah. Um. So I'm glad you said that though. I, I and I didn't even think about that. I'm glad you said that the level of partnership you have with certain brands is going to dictate how much you're going to communicate on stage with them. So there very well could be an angler that owns his or her own business and they're paying their way through and they don't really need sponsorship support. So they're not going to sit there and talk about that. Yep. You know what I mean? So uh, bring up a good point. Um, ben, Pete, before I jump into it, I wanted to talk about. Well, I want to. Um, yeah. Well, I want to do a transition here. For, I, this has been a great conversation. It's why I love doing these podcasts because it's just kind of free flowing and we're getting all sorts of topics. But I want to bring it back to the actual fishing. Yeah at Saginaw Bay because, you know, you went there last year, you, you said you pre-practiced for a couple of days to expand the area. So I did, I think we all want to hear is how practice go kind of what was, what was the pattern like? how did you expand? And uh, we, we've talked about having all the, the mortar issues, yep. but, but how did you, you know, from the actual X's and O's, how did you go out there and put the best bags in the boat over three days? Yeah. So last year in the same tournament, I got second by four ounces. And I knew last year, if I could make it all three days to my smallmouth, I would blow the tournament out of the water. I was on way too consistent of fish to not do that. So to rewind a little bit, last year, day one, I think I had 19 something. And then day two, the wind picked up and I couldn't make it out to those, those smallmouth. And I had to largemouth fish and caught like 10 pounds, fell down to 18th place. And then day three, we had glass conditions and I went out and uh, I think caught almost 22 pounds to move into second place by four ounces. So the reason I give context for that is I knew going into this year, there was two goals I needed to have. And that was expand what we learned the year before and find smallmouth for any wind conditions, period. So I didn't want to put myself in a position again where the wind shifts out of the east across Huron and completely just prevents me from getting there. So the reason I went up in pre-practice was number one, I wanted to be able to idle my, let's just coin it juice, juice spot. Um, I wanted to idle my juice spot to learn it and idle it when I knew there wouldn't be a lot of boats out there because I did not want to even get close to that spot in pre-practice or in actual official practice and someone see me there and it just get overrun. Right. So pre-practice, I went and put about 
10 hours on my motor just on that spot. And, and, it, and when I say a spot, I mean, we're talking, uh, it, it's a, it was essentially a flat uh, that had isolated areas where small gravel rock was collected together. It wasn't big boulders. It was just small, isolated kind of chunk rock uh, off of a sandy flat. So I idled this entire flat um, for a day and a half, learning as much as I could about that area. Going into official practice, I got up really early that morning of day one of practice with the intention to make no more than three casts on that area. My first cast, I caught a 608, and there was about 15 of that size with it. And I was like, okay, they're back. And pretty much what that area is, is in my opinion, because it's near deep water, it's about 18 feet at the top. And it, the main channel goes right by it. What I think it is, is it's an area where bait gets pushed up on top of that flat and the smallmouth pull up to feed. And then they pull off when they're done feeding. So you can go scan that spot and you won't see anything. You're not going to think it's something special. Um, but when you put your troll motor in the water, you'll start realizing there's bait, there's gobies, there's fish. Um, so when I caught that big one and there was a, a pretty good quantity with them, I said, all right, great, they're here. I then went and started expanding on the other areas I had idled in pre-practice and seeing if there was fish on them. And that's where I pretty much developed over the second day of practice and third day of practice, I developed the, the three other spots I had. So four in total and all four of those spots combined based on the wind protection guaranteed that I could at least make it to smallmouth every single day. And all four of those spots I knew for a fact if I had enough time on them, I was guaranteed bare minimum 18 pounds to upwards of 23 pounds. I knew for a fact I was going to stay in that range if I went there all three days. So sure enough, based on the wind prediction, I was pretty much going to have to do a rotation like this. Day one of the tournament, I was going to hit my C and D hole. Day two of the tournament, I was going to hit my B hole. And then the last day, which was our most perfect conditions, I was going to hit the A hole and absolutely blast them. Um, pretty much worked, Ben's pretty much, laughing. It pretty much worked to a T. I mean, I've never had a tournament go this consistent. I mean, like I I've never had a game plan work out this well. So day one, we huffed it through the waves, got my 18 and a half came back day two. The wind was real bad in the morning till about 11. So I large mouth fished up until about 10 30 made my run out to my small mouth blasted them on that spot, had almost 22 pounds, made our run in. We're right behind Patrick by two pounds after day two. That night, day two, you know, being roommates and being competitors, we cut up a little bit over a couple cold um, beverages to rehydrate. Um, we, uh, Patrick said to me, and he probably shouldn't have said it because it fired me up. I was like, pretty much when he said this to me, I was like, dude, I'm going to win this tournament tomorrow. He said, Friday night, he said, now, Trent, remember, I do this for a living and you don't. Oh. I said, I said, all right, big boy. I said, you better catch him tomorrow because I'm going to have 23. I said, dude. Wait a minute. He he said those in the shorts that he wears? Yes. Yeah. And he was was sitting down facing me, so I got a full show, too. Uh, I'm kidding. So I I said, dude, I'm going to blast him tomorrow. And he goes, I'm going to catch him, too. I said, all right. We'll see how it shakes out. And then sure enough, you know, we ran. I really didn't expect them to bite that early. I thought for sure it was going to take about an hour. Because So for a lot of people who don't know, um, 
I actually, I mean, even though I grew up in Georgia, I actually, my first bass I ever caught was a smallmouth. My dad's side of the family's from upstate New York. My mom's side of the family's from Illinois. Um, I grew up fishing Champlain in a small lake in Wisconsin. So I have a lot of history with smallmouth. Um, uh, so I, I just have a lot of confidence with catching them. And I, I knew, I knew that once that sun got positioned up for those smallmouth, because smallmouth are just like spotted bass and linear, they're sight feeders. They want to see what they're hunting, where they're going, all that good stuff. And um, I knew day three that once that sun kind of showed itself out after about the first hour and a half that morning that they were going to absolutely bite. Well, I pull up first thing that morning. I think the first two fish, I put them in as four and a half. They were actually five pounders. My first two fish were five pounders that morning. When I caught that second five pounder, I, I tried really hard not to yell uh inappropriate words with my excitement. Um, but I knew when I caught those two five pounders, I was like, Patrick, I'm coming for you, bud. I hate it, but I'm coming for you. And then we proceeded to pretty much catch nothing but, but four pounders the rest of the day. And, uh, um, you know, my bite shut in it after Patrick and I kind of talked about our days, both our bites shut down around 1130, which was right around the time a front started pushing in. Um, which I kind of learned on Saginaw last year, when those winds start shifting, there is a period of time when that wind changes direction that those smallmouth, for whatever reason, just say, eh, I don't like what's going on right now. I'm going to go suspend out in La La Land. And that's pretty much what they do. Um, as far as catching the fish this week, I caught every single fish on sonar for the most part, except for one. There's one, there's actually a video NPFL put on their page that I actually fan casted because I wasn't seeing fish within the range that I had my sonar running. So as I was moving to the next cluster of rocks, I was just fan casting. I caught one fan casting. The rest of them, I caught every single one of them on Garmin LiveScope. And um, for context, I run all three brands on my boat. I have no affiliation with any of the brands. I run all three because they all have their advantages. Um, when it comes to forward sonar, LiveScope is the king bar none. Um, I don't care what Corbishly says about Active Target too. <laughs> LiveScope absolutely destroys it. Um, and... Uh, um, I caught every single fish looking at them on the scope. I mean, it was pretty consistent. I had to sp just pretty much pan around. If I saw a fish, I got to a point where I could tell if it was a walleye uh, drum or a smallmouth just by the way the fish positioned on the bottom, the way its body looked e either elongated or stocky on the uh, actual forward sonar. Um, and it got to a point where I could pretty much call my shot with catching the fish. That's amazing, man. Uh, what was the... What was the bait of choice? Yeah, so neither one of these companies do I have affiliation with, but I'll mention them because, uh, um, you know, it's what I – you can wa watch the video and you'll see me catching them on it. Um, I caught – it was pretty much a 50-50 split. I either caught them on a uh, flatworm or on a Z2 uh, – uh, baby Z2, yeah, or Z2 Junior, whatever it's called. So a fluke-style bait and then a flatworm. Um, for the most part, I was catching them on drop shot. I did catch a couple on a Ned Rig. Um, and then I was throwing an ALX rods, uh, tricksters, pretty much what I ran all the combos on. And even though I know he'll hate me for saying this, um, my good friend, Austin Felix taught me a few years ago about throwing a heavyweight drop shot. So for the most part, I was throwing a half and a three quarter ounce drop shot weight. Um, the reason I did that was not because of wind or depth. It was to speed up the process of pitching and throwing and getting my bait down to the fish. It's no different than punching, going and punching a mat stretch. You know, in theory, if you get a little bit heavier weight, you can be a little bit more consistent, a little quicker with covering that water. 
same concept with the drop shot. I ran a heavy weight so that bait would get to the bottom as fast as possible. I'd get contact on the bottom, hold it in front of that fish. If it didn't bite, we were picking it up and either rotating bait or going to a different fish entirely. Yeah, with the, with the smallies, and I'm from Kalamazoo, Michigan myself, and but I actually have a lot more largemouth experience, and Pete's from PA, so we've – he, he, he thinks he knows something about smallmouth fishing. I'm just kidding. He's, he's pretty good at it. But um, in my experience, like the fall rate with smallies never really mattered no. uh, for me anyways. Um, but that was before like four fishing sonar and stuff like that. So, um, but yeah, man, that's so going back to four fishing sonar real quick. How many transducers do you run on your uh, trolling motor? Uh, so on my troll motor, I just run Garmin LiveScope for forward, and then I have a uh, uh, Humminbird Mega 360 for 360. Um, I also have a additional forward sonar on my boat that I won't disclose where it is, but there is an additional mm -hmm. forward sonar on my boat that's not on the troll motor uh, that was of great benefit during that week. So, I mean, you got to give Mike you got to talk trash to Mike then. Cause he runs like, I don't know, like 16 of them or something. He runs three. Yeah. He's running one in scout and then one in forward. He has a third one available for when the scout wide bracket comes out, which essentially gives you almost 360 in that view. Um, but right wow. now he's just running the two off the front. Uh, his boat was interesting to rig. I still think he needs to put like vents on his, rod locker because there's three active target boxes two nep two boxes and the thing gets pretty warm so yeah. uh yeah i'm still i still think he needs to get some vents in his rod locker that, he's, he's that's fine he can he can just hire me and i'll i'll sit in the rod locker and fan him fan the whole day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> so that's awesome man so do you have anything else on the no. fish catching so uh even though you and, and and patrick uh you know with his awesome shorts on and stuff we're we're trash talking that healthy competition he helps you get back, man, on day three. Um, you know, did you have any facial expressions like facing each other as you're as you're as you're making your way back to the ramp? So there's two good stories about that. <laughs> One is when we made the run in, we you know, I had I had left a little early. So we were both due in at 5 p.m. Um, the great thing about the NPFL is the way the day the last day launch works is if you're in first. You blast off first and you weigh in last. So you're rewarded yeah. for um, how you progress throughout the tournament, right? So he was boat one, I was boat two. We were doing it at the same time. Um, so once we got the fish and camera guys all situated, we thought we were going to be tight on time, but luckily the direction the wind was blowing, the closer we got to the back of the bay, the calmer it got. So he was able to actually open it up and we got in. We got in pretty much about 20 minutes earlier than we thought. So we got to the mouth of the river. And Patrick was like, man, I wonder if I can still fish. So we <laughs> called Sean Mulhall and Sean said, Trent, you can't fish, but Patrick can. So for context in Saginaw, right where the river starts, which is a no idol, there is a big island, which is pretty much a major highway there for bass to move on. And last year, a lot of good bags got caught off that island. This year, it really wasn't as productive. I think a lot of it had to do with water level. Well, anyways, there was about a 15-minute period there that I sat on the back seat of Patrick's boat <laughs> and uh, had to sit there and watch him fish. And uh, I was praying to God that this man did not bow up on a six-pounder in front of me because um, we hadn't talked weights up until that point, but I had suspicion things were close just by Patrick's mannerisms and, you know. Did you take a peek in the live well? No. Did so you? that's that's the second story. So 
we got to the mouth of the river after he fished and didn't catch anything. We got to the mouth of the river to start the idol. And we were pretty much like, all right, let's have this conversation. And I was like, Patrick, do you, I mean, you told me you have 17, you have 22 again. He goes, dude, I'll be surprised if I have 20. And he said, I didn't weigh him, but I'm just telling you right now, I, if I have 20, it's like 20 in ounces. He was like, what about you? And I was like, well, I know I got over 22, but I don't know how much over 22. I said, I know my smallest fish is a 401, 402. And if that's the case, that means I'm knocking on the door of 23, um, which I ended up having 2210. So I was six ounces shy of, of uh, 23 pounds. And he said, all right, it's going to be close. And then we put on the Carter three by little Wayne and jammed the entire 48 minute <laughs> idle in. And uh, not one time during that idle, not one time during us bagging our fish, not one time during the tanks did we look at our fish. I never peeked at his. I didn't want to see him. When he was pulling them out of the boat, I walked down I walked down the dock a good ways to make sure I didn't see it. Um, and uh, we, we, we truly had no idea until we put them on the scale. And on stage, when you guys were up there next to each other, what was going through your mind at that time? Please, God, don't let me get second by four ounces. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't like, tr like truly I was going to be, I was going to give that dude the biggest hug in the world if he won, because I love seeing him be successful. I love seeing him um, absolutely dominate in the, in, in the sport. He, you know, he's becoming a major figure in. Um, if I got second again, I would want nothing more than to get second to him. Um, I just wanted it to at least not be four ounces again. If I lost yeah. by exactly four ounces again, I was going to jump in that river. 100%. Uh, it almost Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. So, yeah, it's kind of like, uh, I mean, not to compare it's, it's apples to oranges, but like the whole Brock Mosley situation on Sabine river, man, like it was kind of the same deal with him. You know, he came in second, uh, was it last year ounces? Yeah. Um, but, but as you're, as, as that happened, I, you know, we, we all got to see it on live, uh, on fixed TV and stuff like that. But, um, were, were your knees shaking? Oh, dude, I, I was, I mean, so what a lot of people don't see is after I won, held the trophy up, got the pictures, Paul Benson comes up to me. He goes, all right, dude, let's go do business. And um, took me down to this little tiny closet practically with the polygraph guy. There's, <laughs> there's no, there's no AC in there. I'm jacked up on Mountain Dew per se. And I'm just, you know, get put in this little room that's like 102 degrees and do a polygraph for 30 minutes. Um, so when I sat down for the polygraph, dude, I was shaking all over the place. I mean, the polygraph guy was like, now you gotta try to, I know it's hard, but you gotta calm down a little bit. I was like, man, I'm, I don't know what to do. I'm freaking jacked up right now. I just want a hundred grand. And, uh, but yeah, I was, uh, I, I'm not, I'm normally not an emotional guy, but when I, like I said earlier, when I saw my girlfriend come up and she was crying and I look over and Corbishley's wiping tears off his face, uh, I was, uh, uh, I started I lost it for when I was given my uh, little sponsor gratitude. I had to, I had to um, do a little checkup for a second because I was about to lose it for a minute up there. Man, That's awesome. What an amazing, uh, what an, it almost sounds like you're pledging for a fraternity. You had to go <laughs> into the little dark room and to get a polygraph. Like, yeah, you're finally in the club. <laughs> now, you're, now you're, uh, now you're holding this giant shield. Um, and man, that's never going to go away. Like you're, you're nope. always going to be the winner of Saginaw Bay for the MPFL. And Pete, Ben, and I talked about it before. Man, they have the cool, one of the coolest trophies. Oh, it's uh, freaking awesome! It's gigantic, and it weighs like yeah. forty pounds too. Yeah. So, um, 
uh, anything on the uh, the tournament win side from you, Pete? I just want to say, like, I can't even begin to fathom the range of emotions that the last two hours and 15 minutes you had to go through with the boat issues, yep. having to ride back in, knowing that you and the guy you're riding with are one or two, uh, even though your fish. buddies feeling that, feeling that, uh, there had to be a little bit of tension, even though your buddies, because you're vying for that number one spot. Then having to sit there and watch them fish for 15 minutes. Yep. Uh, Saginaw, like you said, is very unique because of that 45 or 48 minute idle where it's no way going into the river back to where, where the weigh-in was. Just the the pressure that had to build up there. I, I can imagine the relief when they when they finally dropped it. That you know you saw the two ounces and God, that had to be had to be pretty uh, exponential to to know that everything came together. And we've talked about it with every, everybody that fishes tournaments has come on. That's won a big event or even, even at a local event, like when it's meant to happen, it happens like to roll up that morning, Mm -hmm. your first two fish or five pounders. Like you're feeling good. Like you said, it's hard not to, to string those explicitives together and, uh, and be all excited uh, because you have a live camera in your boat, but, but you start to feel that mojo going your way. And it's, uh, Man, it was it was really fun to watch. I, I didn't get to watch as much as day day two as I usually do. I got to watch a fair bit of day three, uh, and got to see the way and everything. So it was uh, it was really fun to watch uh, your progression. And then, uh, yeah, I think the smallmouth the tidbits you gave are, are are really good. Like yeah, definitely sight feeders in the Great Lakes. I grew up feeding them, and it's not just Saginaw Bay. Anybody, if you ever go fish any of the Great Lakes, if the wind changes and there's a little bit of a front. Those fish are gonna shut down. It's yeah. They do it on Erie. They do it on St. Clair. It's just man, they do not like when uh, when that stuff changes on them. And which is and, which uh, is interesting because a lot of people will say the worse the conditions, the better the smallmouth fishing. I've yet to ever experience that. Uh, <laughs> but I'm, I'm not saying you got to have glass conditions, but at least consistent wind. Yeah. And not fluctuating directional wind is is generally more of your friend. You can catch them in four footers, but if that wind's changing every couple hours, different directions, a lot of times they're just they're just going to kind of go suspend out in limbo. Yeah, yeah, yeah you got to have that consistent wind for sure. Yep. So before we we conclude this thing with because we talked about it, you have to tell it a really fun story, funny story with with old Mike, and and it was cool to hear Mike uh, shedding some tears for you too because he's a really good dude and and a great angler. Uh, why why did some people just solely stick to largemouth in that event, knowing that most likely smallmouth are going to win. I I really don't know. I had that con. I've had that conversation with a couple of people. I think a lot of it has to do with by, and I, and I don't mean this as a bad a bad thing to Saginaw Bay because I think it's one of the. I truly believe it's one of the most versatile fisheries there is. I mean, you can go absolutely crack largemouth. You you can crack big uh, smallmouth bags, and you can get on some really good tasting walleye too. But I don't think Huron or Saginaw Bay, which, you know, Saginaw Bay is a, a bay off of Huron. Mm-hmm. I just don't think Huron has this, the quantity of smallmouth that you see on like Michigan or Erie. Um, so I think it definitely is a, like we caught them good, but I was only catching seven to nine fish a day. Um, the first day of the tournament, I did catch like 20 fish. But day two, day three, I pretty much was Kevin catching seven to nine fish. Um I think a lot of people struggled to find where the smallmouth were because they were not on the stereotypical big boulders or points or humps or whatever else. Um, 
And I think a lot of people saw how well the lake produced shallow, that it's real easy to go resonate with fish and grass compared to going out in the water and, and, and fighting smallmouth. Yeah. Yeah. I, was just, I think it's a familiarity thing. Uh, yeah. Or a comfortability thing. You got a lot of, you got being the way the NPFL is set up, you have, you have really good anglers that might not have the experience or time on a smallmouth fishery and they just don't, they're just not comfortable going out and doing it. Right. So you see those guys, uh, go in shallow in the grass and, uh, and, and be able to go in there and catch a halfway decent bag of, you know, green fish. Uh, and that's really what hurt Mike was the way his, you know, his smallmouth area set up that second day, he got stuck with those two large mouth, large mouth. Yeah. Wasn't yeah, able to call them. And, you know, it fell him behind a little bit more from you and Patrick. Yeah. Uh, you guys had those more protected areas where you, you were able to, to get out there and catch all smallmouth that second day. So, uh, it, it was there was a lot of a lot of tactics in this one that was a lot of fun to watch with the, the changing conditions and stuff. Definitely, yeah. It um, you know, we we still gave Mike crap for having two trash fish because we yeah, we yeah. all promised <laughs> we all promised all three of us would have fifteen brown cows and uh, he broke the pack. He had, uh, he had two green fish day too. That's fine. We're gonna we're gonna ride him here in North Carolina about it too when we see him. Uh, not that he won't go smash me in the face on Falls Lake uh, any day of the week, but let's talk about well. All in all, man, congratulations on on everything that you've accomplished. Um, and in assuming a significant amount of risk uh, by going out there with mechanical, knowingly mechanical issues and stuff, and and then having that you know that 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 group of of dudes to to really lean on uh that you can trust and stuff that's that's a huge positive story for the for the community to hear but let's hear about your covid mike corbisley story <laughs> so yeah when 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 covid hit a lot of ramp, boat ramps got closed over here um on lake lanier lake lanier is my home lake i live uh, about 60 seconds or 120 seconds from the closest boat ramp. Um, uh, so Mike called me one day. He's like, dude, we've been talking about you coming up fish falls, come fish falls with me and we'll fish a local tournament, which was, a, I think a fishers and men tournament. So I drove up. Um, I don't even remember if we practiced. I don't think we practiced. Um, but anyways, fish the tournament that right off the start of that morning, we pulled up on one of his cranking holes and he put a, um, it was either a five or a six XD right in the center of my back. And, uh, both, both treble hooks went real firm and really, really deep in my back. And, uh, the first thing Mike said was like, dude, just hold still. I'll get pliers and I'll rip it out of the back. I said, no, you're not getting pliers and ripping these dang hooks out of my back. You said, you're going to do the braid trick and I'm going to lay here and you're going to snatch this thing out of my back. So I lay on his back deck. He's all concerned about the fish. I'm concerned about this, these two treble hooks in my back. And um, so he, you know, does the braid trick, snatches both hooks out. And uh, I was like, all right, dude, since you uh, stuck me in the back with a crankbait and we're in at the time he had a blazer, he's in a he's in a proper boat now. He's in a Phoenix where it has an adequate front deck. No offense to people that have blazers, but it was pretty much like fishing a John boat in front of that thing. And um, he uh, 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 I was like, dude, I'm just going to send. I, I said, I'm going to sit on the back of this boat. And I'm gonna beach. I'm gonna make sure every fish we weigh in is one that I catch on a worm off the back of this boat. And sure enough, I dragged a worm the rest of the day, and we had 23 and a half and got second. And I caught all those fish off the back of the boat. We also got big fish that tournament. I caught a seven and a half 
off the back of the boat. He didn't even get the net for me. I had to hand land that thing next to the boat. And uh, yeah, we bat we we battled it out. So you know, I I still in my office. It's over here. I've got my um, uh, Falls Lake Big Fish Trophy and our second place trophy. So that's what it takes. It yeah. takes somebody in short shorts facing you to say, "I'm going to beat the brakes off you," and then another guy to stick you in the back with a crankbait, only for you to come in first at Saginaw Bay and beat both of them. So <laughs> that's an awesome story, dude. Um, yeah. And, and if you ever make your way back up here again, like make sure you hit us up. Uh, oh, definitely. I, yeah, I'll be up there. We're, we've been making plans to, um, uh, to go back up there. So I'll be up there soon. We're looking forward to having you before we, uh, before we sign off here, Ben, Pete, you guys got anything? Uh, the only thing I think we have left to do is uh, we like to give the opportunity Trent for you to shout out any of your sponsors um, or partnerships or relationships. Or partnerships yeah. yeah. Um, I'll say the first one I'll give the biggest shout out to is uh, going to be Mercury. So, um, you know, when my motor had issues, it's, it's kind of like Chevy versus Ford. Everyone will be like, oh, you shouldn't got a Merc. Um, I'm here to tell you right now, I have ran a Mercury since I was a kid. Um, as far as tournaments are concerned, I've ran the Pro XS model lineup since 2013. And this is the only time I have ever had a motor not bring me back to the boat ramp. Um, I've ran the four. This is my fifth four stroke I've had since it came out. I've had absolutely no problems with it. I think it's a testament to the mo that that motor itself that we actually just got the diagnostic report the other day. It had 88 guardian mode faults. It has two broken rings. Um, it's not making compression on three cylinders and, um, uh, it made so much crankcase pressure because of the broken rings that it was spewing oil after out of every single orifice it possibly had. Um, I think it's a testament to the fact that that mo the way that motor is built and designed that it acts even though it was hurt, it got me through almost three to full days of a tournament. So I can't give more of a shout out than Mercury for that. Um, from there, Phoenix Boats, Palmetto Boat Center. Like I said earlier, if you're in Georgia or South Carolina or anywhere remotely worth you know within the distance to drive to greenville south carolina check out palmetto boat center for all your boat needs amy the boat aka the boat squirrel she is absolutely awesome when it comes to any issues or or major mechanical issues you have on your boat um from there x2 power um boat logics mounts power pole um and then obviously sonar pros um also got to give a big shout out to nickels lures and alx rods as well that's awesome, man. We we appreciate you joining us. I will say it sounds like you owe Amy uh, the boat squirrel a T-shirt. It sounds like oh, a great T-shirt. Uh, so she, I mean, again, testament to them and Mercury. The boat already has is almost done getting a new power head put on as of this morning. That's awesome. Um, so, I'm going to go back next week and pick up the boat. I promised I'd bring the trophy back so we can get pictures. Um, I think Amy, I put her through enough stress last week. She uh, – she was freaking out every single day. I would get a text from her. Holy crap. It made it another day. Um, <laughs> everyone there was like, you were, you put Amy through the ringer last week. Um, I owe her, I owe her and the, and the guys at Palmetto big time. Cause they, uh, they're, you know, they got a long list of, of, of people they got to take care of there as far as customers. And the fact they were able to go ahead and get my boat in, get it broken down, figure out what's wrong and get a powerhead from Mercury as quick as they have is, is awesome. That's awesome, dude. Uh, yeah. Pete, you got anything, brother? 
No, Trent, I appreciate you taking some time to talk to us, uh, coming on the show, sharing your story. Looking forward, actually, I'd, I'd love to, to get you on to talk about uh, rigging and the importance of clean power and, and all Definitely. that good stuff because I – I, I rig all my, my boat myself and I've helped a few friends and I, you know, I've kind of tinkered and toyed and figured out how important that stuff is. And yeah, that's exactly. probably the number one question when you look at, at all the, you know, online stuff, you know, why isn't this working? It's like, well, how are you running power? And like, Oh, I got my 1983 gambler with the original, <laughs> you know, yeah. seven or 12 gauge wire running 22 feet. And I don't know why this live scope won't work. So yeah. I think it'd be 100%. great to get you back on and talk about that a little bit. And, uh, just appreciate you taking some time. Uh, I know you got busy catching up from being gone all week and everything. So yeah, really definitely. You. Definitely. Yeah, man. Uh, we didn't talk about uh, a lot of things that we want to talk about. So we're going to have you back on Trent. We appreciate you joining us here on the one cast. We look forward to seeing your performance down in Oklahoma and uh, you're going to see us down at uh, Lanier in your hometown. So sounds good appreciate to me guys. You coming on brother. Yeah, yeah man. I appreciate it, guys. Have, a, have a great season, brother. Yep, see ya. That's a good one. That's a good one. Oh, God, it's a toad, It's a toad, dude. Let's go. I wake up to a little bit of drool on my pillow, feel like it's going to be a bad day.